Hi, this is Pastor Rob Stone from Duns Creek Baptist Church. We want to thank you so much for listening to our weekly audio sermons podcast. Duns Creek Baptist Church is a community alive by grace and known by love. We long to be a force for good here in Putnam County, Florida. You can learn more about us on the web by visiting dunscreekbaptist.org or visit us any Sunday morning at 1030 a.m. for worship. Now, please enjoy the message. In the fall of every year for the last four, four years, um, our staff has basically taken uh, basically a Friday night and a Saturday, and we've kind of gotten out of town, and we've spent like 48 hours away together, and we've kind of prayed, and we've, we're, we're bringing kind of all we feel that God has laid on our hearts, and we bring it into this retreat, and then we basically put pen to paper, and we plan out the entire following year. And there's something that, for me, is really settling and, and helpful about that because it allows me just to go, hey, I know what the plan is. No matter what happens this week, I know what's coming on Sunday until this year. And we had this big, beautiful plan of all the things we were going to do. In about the fourth week of quarantine, we just threw everything out. And so um, what that has meant is there's, we've, we've kind of, as a church, just been going Whatever God brings me that week is what we've been talking about. And so for the first time since the COVID outbreak, we are starting a sermon series together. And I'm really excited about it because it means for the next five weeks, I know what we're talking about. And, and I'm really grateful for that. And so let me just go ahead and preface it by saying this. How many of you grew up in an evangelical church? Now, one of the things that is true, one of the things that is a part of the evangelical movement, the evangelical movement really can trace its history back to the holiness movement of the 19th century and the fundamentalist movement of the turn of the 20th century. And what is true about both of those movements is also true about the evangelical movement is that we are a people who are Adventist, meaning that we are people who are looking forward to the coming return of Jesus. We are looking for the day that Jesus comes back just as he promised that he would. Now, one of the things that can happen for us as people who are waiting on and expecting the return of Jesus is that we can sometimes do what we do when we're waiting on someone else. And my wife isn't here, so I'm going to throw her under the bus, and then I will tell you why she's right and I'm wrong. So, so Meg, I'm, I'm just letting everyone know up front, you're right, I'm wrong, we'll talk about this. We have three children. So when Meg and I get ready to go anywhere, I get ready much faster than she does. And the reason for that is, and this is where Meg is right and I'm wrong, Meg is typically the one who's also helping or commanding our children to get ready. So it's not like I'm waiting on my wife and my wife is really slow. I get finished and then my wife is also yelling at our son to put pants on and yelling at her daughter to brush her teeth and also changing Ellison's diapers. So like she's doing all of the things. But here's what I do. And ladies, if your husband is next to you in the room, don't elbow him in the ribs too hard when I say this. Here's what I have the tendency to do in that moment is I'm ready to go. So I sit down and wait. Tell me my wife's not the only one who's looking at that picture. 
frustrated, running late, kids are running around, and your husband is sitting in the recliner, frustrated, doing nothing. And, and unfortunately, that's me a lot. Now, I think the reason for that is that we tend to think of waiting. We tend to think of waiting as passive. We think of waiting as something that we do passively, meaning that when I'm waiting, I'm not doing anything. I don't have any responsibilities while I'm waiting because, after all, I'm waiting on you. And I think if we're honest, there's a certain element of that kind of Adventist idea that we are, uh, we are waiting on the return or the second Advent or the second coming of Jesus. And so as we are waiting on that moment, what can sometimes happen for us as evangelical Christians is that we end up doing a lot of this, just waiting, just waiting. And so what I want us to talk about, especially in this moment, because what is happening right now in this moment is that we are living in an unprecedented moment of our lives, meaning there are things going on right now that we've never had to deal with as 21st century Americans. And since we've never had to deal with it in our lives anymore, we look at it as something that is subjectively unprecedented, when the truth is it's just unprecedented in our lives. It's just unprecedented for us. It's not unprecedented in the history of man. It's just unprecedented for us. But because it's unprecedented for us, and we all see the world through our own eyes, we have the tendency to go, well, this is it. This is just signs that the end is here. This is just signs that we're living in the end times. This is it. Jesus is going to be back now any moment. And I have nothing bad to say about that belief. I've got nothing to say. If that's what, if that's what you believe, awesome. Awesome. My concern is that we have the tendency to look around and go, well, we're living in the end times. We're living in the end. It's, it's, it's about to end any moment. And instead of that, invigorating us, instead of that giving us all this energy and power and sense of immediacy to be the people God has called us to be and to do what God has called us to do, there's a whole lot of sitting down and waiting. There's a whole lot of sitting down on the recliner and going, all right, God, come on. And so what I want us to focus on over the next five weeks is I want us to look at this idea and, and there are a couple of places in the Bible where we see a very clear eschatology. Now, eschatology is a fan, fancy way of saying how we view the end times. But there is a letter, in fact, it's Paul's earliest letter, where Paul lays out a pretty compelling eschatology for a, a group of followers of Jesus who had the expectation that Jesus would return in their lifetime. And so in the first century, Paul is writing a letter to a group of people who had the expectation that Jesus was going to come back in their lifetime, and then they're looking around at some of their friends and some of their family and some of their fellow church members who have died, and Jesus hasn't come back yet. And they're really struggling with that. They're really struggling with that idea. They're really struggling with what does that mean 
for them as they're walking through this reality of going, hey, Jesus promised he's coming back, and we thought he was going to come back before we died, and now there are people dying, and we don't know what to do with that. And so Paul writes a letter. It's the first of two letters that we have recorded in Scripture to a group of people in the city of Thessalonica. Thessalonica is a city of Macedonia, the northern part of Greece. And he writes this letter to the people of Thessalonica, laying out for them in the New Testament letters of Paul the clearest picture of Paul's eschatology. And if I could put it in five words, this is what I've done to give us our sermon series title. So over the next five weeks, we're going to study Paul's first letter to the church in Thessalonica, what you have in your Bible as 1 Thessalonians. In the sermon series, I have entitled, This is Not the End. This is not the end. But in order for us to understand the context of this letter, in order for us to understand the background of this letter, and for us to see where we are going today, it is important to understand how it is that Paul came to encounter this community in Thessalonica. And so for that, we're going to look at Acts chapter 17. I should probably turn this on first. That would help. There we go. Acts chapter 17, verse 1. After they passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As usual, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, including a large number of God-fearing Greeks or Gentiles as well as a number of the leading women. And by the way, isn't that what you want to say about your church? That our church has a number of the leading women? Seems like a nice thing to be able to say about your church. So, but the Jews became jealous, and they brought together some wicked men from the marketplace. They formed a mob and started a riot in the city. Attacking Jason's house, they searched for them to bring them out to the public assembly. When they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here too. And Jason has welcomed them. They are all acting contrary to Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, Jesus. So Paul and Silas show up in Thessalonica, and they begin to do what they did everywhere they went. They began to preach the gospel. They began to reason with some of the Jewish people in the synagogue, and they begin to explain that this Jesus is the Messiah, this Jesus who came and who ministered and died and rose again, He is the one we've all been waiting for. 
And a number of the Gentile believers, so there were Gentile believers, there were Gentiles racially, but by faith, they had started to believe in the Jewish God. And so they are convinced and they're going, all right, we believe it. This Messiah is the one. And then there's a number of leading women. And when it says leading women, what they're saying is essentially some Jewish matriarchs of their households, some women in the community that had incredible influence in their households also become believers in this Jesus. And then the people get mad. And they start inciting a riot. And the reason they're inciting a riot is because the claim that they're putting on Paul is Paul is talking about a king other than Caesar. Now, for most Jewish people in the Roman world, they were not Roman citizens, which meant they lived as second-class people. They lived as vulnerable or marginalized people. And here, this guy comes into the Jewish synagogue talking about a different king aside from Caesar, and they're worried because they know what happened last time the Roman Empire got mad about a possible uprising. So they're going, get these guys out of here. So in Acts chapter 17, we essentially have about nine verses of Paul and Silas in Thessalonica. And then essentially, they're run out of town by a riot. So Paul is writing a letter, his first letter that we have recorded in Scripture. And he's writing a letter to the people of Thessalonica that he loves and he cares for, but he had to flee from them for the very safety of his life. Essentially, at risk of his own life, he's running out of town. So he's just told these people about Jesus. He's just shared the gospel message. And then he's going to leave or he might be killed. If you continue reading Acts chapter 17, we know that the riot is so, is, is so incensed. We know the people are so angry. They actually follow him in Silas to the town of Berea. And they follow him there, attempting to kill him there as well. Paul is writing a letter to the people of Thessalonica, and he knows that they have received the gospel message. He knows that they believe in Jesus, but he also knows that if that's how angry the people were in the city, that this group of people who has just become believers, they are going to face a radically uphill battle. They are going to face all kinds of persecution. They are going to be unbelievably unpopular. Many of them are going to lose their jobs. Those who were a part of artisan guilds, which is the earlier way of saying they were a part of unions, they ended up getting kicked out of the guilds that they were a part of. Essentially, to claim that you were a believer in Jesus in Thessalonica could have cost you everything. And Paul wants to be there. He wants to be there with him and pour into this community but all he has time for is, let me tell you about Jesus. Now I got to go. So Paul writes a letter to them. Paul writes a letter to this community of faith filled people who are facing every possible persecution, who are facing every possible form of, 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 of intimidation. And Paul's writing a letter to them to do two things. He wants to champion them. He wants to champion them in their cause. He wants to celebrate them. He wants to encourage them. 
And he wants to challenge them. He wants to challenge them. Because they've put their faith in a Jesus that they believe is coming back in their lifetime. And so there is the tendency to kind of rest on their laurels. There is the tendency to kind of just sit back and go, all right, well, we are waiting then. And so as we read over the next five weeks, the letter, the first letter to the church of Thessalonica, we're going to discover the challenge that I believe Paul would say to us today, living in this moment, living in this unprecedented for us moment, these are the words that I believe Paul would say to us, and we're also going to see the challenge that I believe Paul would lay upon us. And so today we jump in to our first sermon of this sermon series, The World Turned Upside Down. The World Turned Upside Down. Now, I'm a big fan of the musical Hamilton, so I've been singing this song, The World Turned Upside Down a whole lot, but I love this idea of the world turned upside down because how many of us right now feel like we're living in a moment where the world has turned upside down? How many of us feel like we are living in the world turned upside down moment? So these are the words of Paul. This is what Paul writes to the church of Thessalonica, Thessalonica, First Thessalonians chapter 1, and this is what we read. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. Grace to you and peace, because remember, it was not peaceful when I left. Grace to you and peace, because peace is not what you are living in. Grace to you and peace, because your peace can't be dependent upon your circumstance or your situations. We live in a peace that comes not from our surroundings. We live in a peace that comes from Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. We always thank God for all of you, making mention of you constantly in our prayers. We recall in the presence of our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor motivated by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that He has chosen you. Because our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power, in the Holy Spirit, and with full assurance. You know how we lived among you for your benefit. And you yourselves became imitators of us and of the Lord when in spite of severe persecution, you welcomed the message with joy from the Holy Spirit. As a result, you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Acacia. For the word of the Lord rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Acacia, but in every place that your faith in God has gone out. Therefore, We don't need to say anything. For they themselves report what kind of reception we had from you. How you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Now, 
A, a couple of things before we get into the meat of today's sermon. There's something so incredibly beautiful about Paul's words here. Paul's saying, hey, we know what it's like there. We were there just a short time, but we know what kind of reception we got from the world around you. We know what kind of reception we got from your culture. We know what kind of reception we got from your government. But here's what we also know. We know that in the midst of all of that, your faith has proven true. In the midst of all of that, by the power of the Holy Spirit, with full assurance, you have stood up and you have said, I don't care what it costs and I don't care what it's going to mean. I am going to stand for Jesus. And when people live like that, when people live that kind of radical commitment, the whole world takes notice. The whole world takes notice. Essentially, the story of this small group of believers from Thessalonica was so powerful that the testimony about them spread all throughout the region. Have you heard about the church in Thessalonica? Have you heard about what they've been through? Have you heard about the endurance of their faith? It's Paul saying, look, we don't even have to tell other people about you. When we show up somewhere, the news of your faith beat us there. I wonder, I wonder if, if for nothing else today, if you hear no other word that I'm going to say today, would you be willing to hear these words of Paul and ask yourself the question, do I have the kind of faith that is newsworthy do I have the kind of faith that is noteworthy? Do I have the kind of faith that someone would go tell someone else about? Because here's where I think our subjective experience as 21st century Americans has given us a skewed sense of the moment we're living in. No doubt we are living in a moment of great discomfort. No doubt we are living in a moment where all of our norms and expectations have been turned upside down. But church, we have not been persecuted. And when there are men and women and children today in places around the world for whom their faith makes them a target, can you imagine the audacity we would have as 21st century American Christians to say, well, you know, we're just living in the end times because of all this persecution. We haven't experienced persecution. So the question for us is not, have we experienced persecution? The question becomes, when the moment comes that you experience persecution, when the moment comes that your faith will cost you something, Will your faith stand in such a way that the world around you will stand back and take notice? Will your faith stand in such a way that the world around you would go, I will tell you, I don't believe what they believe, but I have zero doubt that they believe it. I may not believe in the Jesus they believe in, but I will tell you this, there is no one who lives out love more compellingly than this person. Would we be the kind of people
people that in the midst of persecution would have a newsworthy and noteworthy faith. Because that's the compliment Paul has just given the church of Thessalonica. Paul has just said to them, the news of your faith has spread far and wide. We don't even have to tell people about you because everyone is amazed by your faith. I wonder what would happen today in Putnam County, Florida if the people who are called and redeemed of Jesus Christ lived out a kind of faith that was newsworthy and noteworthy to everyone else in this community. I wonder what might happen in this county. I wonder what might happen in this state. I wonder what might happen in our nation. I wonder what might happen on the face of this globe if we would be willing to be the people who lived a newsworthy So two places I want to look at in this first chapter, and then we're going to let you go. Number one, verse number three, we recall in the presence of our God and Father, your work produced by faith, your labor motivated by love, and your endurance inspired by faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's be honest. We're all a little tired. We're all a little tired. We're all a little exhausted. We're all a little bit frustrated with the moment that we're living in. And so for us to be people whose faith is newsworthy or noteworthy, it's going to mean that we have to go further than we think we can. It means we're going to have to do more than we think we should have to. And it's going to mean that we have to do all of it for longer than we think we have the capability of doing. Think about what Paul is saying here. Your work produced by faith. Your labor motivated by love. Your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. If we are to be disciples of Jesus, who work in labor with endurance in this moment, if we are going to be the men and women and children of Jesus, if we are going to be the followers of Jesus who, who work in labor and endure in this moment, it will require faith and love and hope in Jesus. There is no other source of what God has commanded us to do. There's nothing else we can hope for. It's not like we can go, it was really hard for me to work and labor with endurance, but it worked out okay because I had enough money. It was really hard for me to work and labor with endurance, but it worked out okay because I have a really great family or because the neighborhood I live in is phenomenal. The only thing that's going to give us what we need to be the disciples that God has called us to be in this moment is we've got to have faith in love, in hope, in Jesus. Jesus is the source of everything we need. And I think so often in moments like this, we tend to look around and we start looking as if other things can be the source. We start looking around expecting other things to be the source. Christ alone is the source of our faith and our hope and our love. So put your faith and your hope and your love in Jesus.
And this is what we read in verse 10. And what we read in verse 10 is what's going to kind of clue us in to where Paul is going over these five chapters. And if you were with us a few weeks ago, or if you've been with us on Wednesday nights just a few months back, I've actually talked a lot about this lately because I feel like this is something that God has really been bringing a freshness to my heart and my mind about. This is what we read Paul say at the end of verse of chapter 1. And to wait, and to wait for his Son from heaven who he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Now, here's what I need you to understand. Paul is writing this letter in the aftermath of the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. He is writing this letter before the return of Christ. And in the space in between, in the tension in between the resurrection and the second coming, Paul says... These words, it's Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. Now, I want you to catch the tense here because we're going to dive in, in just for a moment into the nerdiness of the Greek language. Now, the Greek language has something in it that the English language does not. So when we use verbs, we use them in a tense. We use them in a past, present, or future tense. That's how we speak in English. In Greek, they have a fourth tense that is referred to as the perfect tense, which is something that is simultaneously true now and in the future. Paul says, this Jesus who was raised from the dead, this Jesus who we are waiting on, rescues us. He doesn't say, who rescued you from the coming wrath. And he doesn't say, who will rescue you from the coming wrath. He uses this perfect tense, this simultaneous present and future tense, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Do you hear what he's saying? Paul is saying that God is coming back, but while we wait there is something happening in us now that will also be true in the future. You and I are being rescued. Currently. It's not a rescue that just happened then, and it's not a rescue that's just going to happen then. It's a rescue that is currently taking place in us but by faith, God has announced over us a reality that you and I have yet to fully live up to. God has declared over you a standing you have not earned. And then He has called you to begin living up to what He has already announced over you. What He has already declared over you. It's one of the, the biggest struggles. I'm, I'm grateful that I get the opportunity to, to work with a lot of people in our, in our community with addiction recovery. And as, I think it's one of the hardest things for, for people who are battling addiction to deal with is because sometimes addiction can feel like it's the defining feature of you. 
But here's why I, I don't think that the answer to addiction is, is a bunch of, of, of programs and recovery. I think the answer to addiction is making sure that you're matching the programs and recovery with a faith in Jesus, with a faith in a Jesus who announces over you a truth that you have yet to fully live into, who announces and declares over us a truth we don't fully experience yet. We may not see it yet. We may not feel it yet. But by faith, we go, God, you have said this is true. And so what Paul is saying to the church in Thessalonica, he's saying you're waiting on Jesus, the one whom God raised from the dead, who rescues you. He is rescuing, rescuing you right now, and you will be rescued by him in the future. It's this perfect tense of understanding that you and I are living in the process of rescue. But even when it doesn't feel like there's much progress in our process, God has said it is already done. You and I do not wait passively. And the reason that we don't wait passively is this. We are not waiting for rescue. Because Jesus We are not waiting for rescue. We're not waiting for a rescue that will come because Jesus, by the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, is right here, right now. So we wait on a second coming of Christ that will be the culmination of all things, that will be Christ coming to restore and redeem His creation but you and I live in a simultaneous reality, a reality where you and I are currently being rescued in a reality where we have already been rescued. Because we live not waiting on rescue to come, we live in the presence of the fullness of God through the power of the Holy Spirit. We are not waiting on rescue. Jesus So this morning, as we close this first week together in this sermon series looking at Paul's Thessalonica, I'm going to have our worship team come back up, and they're going to lead us in this song that we sang right before I came up and preached today. But I love the words of this verse. It's just this declaration, this announcement, that you and I are not waiting on a rescue to come. You and I are living in rescue. Because when we sing about Jesus, we're not saying you are coming and you will move in this place. We say you are here moving in this place. We say that you are here mending every heart. We say that you are here turning lives around because you and I are not waiting for a rescue that's coming. You and I are living right now in the presence of of Jesus. So we're not waiting on a rescue to come. We are living in rescue. One word of Greek text, one one tense of a Greek verb and suddenly it all comes into beautiful clarity that you and I are not waiting 
We're not passively waiting. We're not kicked with our feet back up on the recliner in frustrated going, all right, all right, when's it going to happen? You and I live presently in the rescue that's to come. We live presently in the rescue that's to come because Jesus is here.